fellow watch lovers, nerds, enthusiasts, or however you identify. You're listening to 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker podcast with your hosts, Andrew, and my good friend, Everett. Here, we talk about watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Everett, how are you? You know. Fluster, that was maybe the most chaotic intro we've ever had. So much activity that you guys will never know happened because it sounded clean. If I weren't admitting to it right now, you would never have known. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you don't have to do us dirty like that, man. I did it. It was chaos. I almost <laughs> forgot that I was supposed to introduce the show. You're like, what What do we do? What oh, do we God, do? I've never done this before. You, you know, the nice thing about the intro is oopsies are like the easiest thing in the world to fix. You just press the record button once, press the record button again, and start over again. And we're both usually pretty sober. That's right. That versus the outro, where A, we're not usually sober, um, where we have to like just sort of pause and then come back in. And then I have like an editing mission. If you remember to write it down. Or have to carve it out. Yeah. Uh, No, I'm doing really well. I, you know, just... (laughs) 2-22-22 today. Happy it, Tuesday. Tuesday, exactly. Uh, it will be um, It will be n- no longer 2-22-22 when they hear this. No, or speaking to you from the past. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's better here, that. probably. <laughs> Let's hope it's better there. I hope so. I mean, let's just be optimistic for once. Yeah. Tomorrow's better than today. Because <laughs> today's almost over. Um, Andrew, how are you? You're wearing a lovely shirt. I love this shirt. I have a that you're wearing. I'm wearing a uh, authentic McNeil tartan Pendleton mm. wool shirt. It is so good. Mm-hmm. A little itchy, but it's a wool shirt, so it should be a little itchy. You, you know, the thing about Pendleton wool is usually it becomes not itchy pretty quickly. Yeah. In my in my experience. You got to break it in, though. There's a break-in period. As with all well-made garments, Yeah, there's a break-in period. Yeah. It's not like those army blankets, though, which will just... <laughs> <laughs> which wouldn't even be comfortable horse blankets. Like, you yeah. wouldn't want to do that to the horse. Yeah. Do you own any of the thick Pendleton wool blankets? Like the... Just one. We've got one, and I really, really love it. And I, I'm always like, I want to get more of these because it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, so in, in some respects, it's almost like decoration. Um, tapestry. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I don't. Uh, but I don't actually know what we would do with with them. No, someone got it for us as like a picnic blanket, and I was like, the fuck, you will? You're not gonna put that on the ground outside? Yeah. No. Use your shit. Yeah, wrap up in it, but you're, it, I don't know. It's its a, for those of you unfamiliar with Pendleton Wool, Pendleton Wool Wait, mills, wait, wait, wait. Who is unfamiliar I, with Pendleton Wool? I don't know. There may be somebody out there. Pendleton is a, a wool manu- manufacturer, <laughs> provider. They do woolen goods, clothes, shirts, pants, blankets, oftentimes with uh, First Nation patterns. They do a lot of tartan patterns. Uh, and they're based out of Oregon, so they're. Um, I, I think perhaps they're maybe a bigger deal to us than people across the country. I, I don't think that's true. I think Pendleton sort of rose to national prominence back in the '60s I, by way of the Beach Boys, yeah. and now it's like an international thing. I, I wouldn't disagree, but I'm just saying for those unfamiliar, like Columbia Sportswear. Yeah, people know about that. 
Uh, what's the name of the the Columbia Sportswear lady? Gert Boyle. I don't know. So Gert Boyle's office used to be right under my mom's office when I was a little kid, and she was super nice. She would be like, "Oh, how you doing, Everett?" Like I would see her on the sidewalk all the time. And she knew who I was. Nice. And you it was like this. Shit? They were a mega company at the time. It was the 80s, right? They were a mega company at the time, but uh, not like they are now. And she had somebody with an office above her. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So they had, it, I think it was their original retail location. Oh, okay. And they still had like a showroom there, but it wasn't a retail location at that point. Yeah. 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 So anyway, yeah, Sam got me this shirt for Christmas and I, I love it. It's supposed yeah. to get very cold tonight, so I didn't want to just like have a t-shirt because it's also warm in my house. Yeah. So I was like, this is perfect. Nice woolen layer. Do it to it. Yeah. Do it to it. Um, we are we are not converting to a wool or a sportswear podcast. We might. There's the, you know, the lots day of, is young and the future is bright. Lots of things could happen. Maybe after this episode, <clears throat> we will. Yeah. Uh, because we're talking about the, maybe the most terrible subject we've ever talked about but we are talking about watches i'll say that yeah uh, for the record we are talking about watches um but perhaps the silliest topic we've ever talked about i can't even blame you because it's a hundred percent my fault that we're talking about this yeah you gave me this idea and you're like can we make an episode out of this i was like yeah we can make an episode out of this here's how we're gonna do it (laughs) and it's i think it's gonna be a fun episode this is very much this isn't quite like our deep dives that's yeah. That's that's too much. I'm not gonna fist bump you. <laughs> okay, uh, this isn't quite not like our, our our stuff you should know about episodes. Uh, I don't know. I, it's closer I, I to it. I think it's, it's gonna it's, be it's, that. It's a, it's a a light version of that. So today we're gonna talk about the helium release valve, the helium escape valve. Helium is a hard word for me. So I'm I'm it's, helium. Yeah, helium is is what comes out a lot for me. Uh, so that's where we're what we're going to talk about today. Like nuclear, the, the HRV, and magnificent. That's another hard word for me. I don't use it. I don't write it. It just is a word that exists, but isn't it? it it's just trash. It's over there. Magnificent. Yeah. Okay. There's how, a how lot. Do you, of, how do you say magnificent? I know how to say it. You say it magnificent, but if I get speaking quickly, I mess it up. And you'll if. You, I won't ever you know, I won't do it in front of you because it's not a word that I use. It's not in my vocabulary. Yeah, that's why I want you to tell me what the mistake is. I don't know. I can't do it on purpose. It just happens. It's like a disaster. That feels a little it feels a little bit like you you blue balled me on this one. Maybe I did. <laughs> <laughs> so the helium release valve. What, what can we settle on what we're gonna call it? Yeah, we're gonna call it the helium release valve. Also known as helium escape valve. The herve. Um, the 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 herve or the hev we're gonna call it the herve i like the hev more the hev <laughs> that's my nickname so when i'm when i'm overweight the, the heavy heavy <laughs> what up hev <laughs> that's a good one so first we're gonna we're gonna dive into why the herve exists and I'll answer a question up front. We'll bottom line up front this. I, wait, wait, wait. I know we just agreed on it, but can we agree not to call it the Herb? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Why it exists. I'm going to bottom line up front here. Bluff. There is maybe one listener to this show and maybe about a hundred 
to 200 people on the planet who actually need this functionality. No, statistically speaking, there are zero there are zero listeners of this show. Yeah, st- yeah, statistically you you don't need it. And globally like less than 1000 people definitely, but probably like 200 or so people. I think 300 so so okay, so so what it is. The helium release valve is a device that was implemented in watches and sixes. We'll we'll put more more spin on that later. Um, to solve a very specific problem, which is the introduction of helium to a watch at compression, which upon decompression expands and explodes crystals usually off of watches. Which Um, is super fun. And I don't understand why people wouldn't like that. The only time that happens is when helium is introduced environmentally to the oxygen that you're breathing and gets in the watch so so that is called saturation diving. And in the United States right now, there's something like 3,500 commercial divers. And of those 3,500 commercial divers, only about 300 of them are saturation divers. It is like the most elite type of commercial diving and fewer than probably 1,000 people internationally do it. So saturation diving. Ultra long stays at between very deep and ultra deep depths wherein the person usually a team of peoples are submerged in some kind of habitat or some kind of living space and exist under compression for the duration of their project and the reason, usually about a month is the is the typical sat uh, tour. And and the reason for that is because when the body is working at such depths, you, you, there's too much time wasted in ascent and descent. There had to be a way to hold a person at that depth so they could work and not work without being in the water the whole time. So the the, the helium release valve is for. I think a common misconception is that it's just for super depth, like super deep diving. It's not even for super deep diving. You don't need a helium release valve to strap a watch to the outside of a submersible and sink that bitch. You need it only to exist in these saturation environments. And the reason these saturation environments exist is because your body can only absorb so much oxygen at depth so other gases are introduced into your breathing atmosphere most famously nitrogen nitrogen helium and your body absorbs that and it doesn't affect your body but it allows your body to continue to process oxygen fills the the space that that you need yeah so i'm not sure i'm not sure i think i i made an interruption there and didn't make it clear so an an standard diving condition so Mm -hmm. say at uh, you know perhaps even as little as uh, ninety meters, which is a pretty typical very deep depth for scuba divers, perhaps, or that's even dive, yeah. or even surface supplied divers to go. That's a that's a really a really deep depth. So we think about 200, 500 meter watches, etc. But but in ra- reality, a scuba diver is never going to go anywhere near that deep. Shouldn't don't do that. Ninety is like crazy 90 meters is crazy and and if you're scuba diving like with a wetsuit or perhaps even a dry suit on 
you within about an hour, your body's going to take on toxic levels of nitrogen, mm-hmm. and you run into all sorts of potential problems, namely death, but also upon decompression, decompression sickness, mm-hmm. aka the bends. The bends. Yeah. So, so what you need is for certain projects, you know, a dive, for instance, at a hundred meters or so over a long period of time, you need the ability to get, be down there longer or you're going to get sick. Mm-hmm. So, so mixed gas or what we call saturation diving was invented, what, the first part of the 20th century or yeah, conceived ish. of? Yeah, first part conceived of, the, of, I think, you're like, ooh, I don't remember the date on it. I think like 1938 is the first successful mixed gas dive. Um, what a what an American hero right there. Like, yeah, I'll breathe whatever that poison is. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. And put me down. So we get that. So you replace all yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. You replace all the all the potentially toxic gases with helium. Yes. He, basically it's helium with it, it's mostly helium with a tiny bit of oxygen. Because that's all you need. And the helium takes up all the space in your cells that would otherwise be infiltrated by nitrogen. Because oxygen also can be mm-hmm. can be toxic. So both the nitrogen in standard O2 as well as as well as oxygen can be really harmful. There is still a decompression period, but it's not as potentially fatal as decompression with nitrogen in your blood. And in saturation diving, mm-hmm. modern saturation diving, certainly you're doing it less often. Yeah. And but for a very long time. So it, anyway, that's the atmosphere that you're existing in: a high helium, low oxygen environment. And because of the size and structure of helium. It is displacing the atmosphere that would normally, under not pressure, exist inside your watch. And now we have a problem. Because on decompression, the watches are sealed tight enough to not let it out quickly enough to prevent explosions. Yeah, so it gets in over the course of about a week. Helium, mm-hmm. smallest atom. Is it? Helium is the smallest atom, hmm. both in terms of mass, but also volume. I've met some small atoms. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so helium, being such a small atom, uh, has the ability to get inside the watch, certainly uh, more easily than, than a H2O molecule could. H2O molecule, relatively giant. Mm -hmm. Helium atom, tiny. So helium's actually just squishing right on past that double Viton gasket Mm -hmm. and getting in your watch. Yep. Over about five days, I think, is what they say. Hmm. And then as pressure changes, can't explode. So now we, we, we have our problem. We've got exploding watches. Now, the, the easiest solution is you just open the crown <laughs> and let it out. And you just don't close it back up till you come back up. So there's the first helium release valve. Yeah. You just turn off your watch during decompression. And the problem is in the you know 50s and 60s, as guys are doing this, notably on the on the US Navy Sea Labs mm-hmm. experiments, their you know decompression is there's stuff going on and they've got to be focused on other perhaps work things and they forget to do it. 
So you forget to open up your crown. That pressure doesn't, that helium expands, doesn't have the ability to escape fast enough and kablammo. No. Crystal to the face. Every time it makes me so mad. Every time that you get happens. a black eye. Uh, I, one thing I I didn't find. I wanted to see pictures of these exploded watches, and saw see if it was just a gasket, like if just the the crystal was just pressed out. Like is the bezel damaged? Is the movement damaged? Or is it just a pain in the ass to press it all back together? Yeah. So Bob Barth, I think, <clears throat> is the guy. The Navy Sea Lab, sort of legendary. Navy Sea Labs diver, he's the guy credited with coming, actually taking this issue to a Rolex executive, um, probably someone who was there to sort of pimp Rolex products to the Sea Lab divers because mm-hmm. they were kind of superstars in their time. Um, and Bob Barth is credited for saying, hey, I got this problem. We got this problem. And I think that the problem they described and, and the type of crystals that would have been prevalent at the time were were acrylic crystals right so right the fitment was probably friction um and and more focused on keeping water out versus keeping anything in so i assume it just sort of plopped bloop, bloop. okay that was a shorter episode than i expected it to be <laughs> So we've got the problem. There's some sub-problems in the solution. Yeah. Yeah. And and and, and kind of an interesting story. Some some intrigue, if you will. Some intrigue. Maybe not quite Hook Huygens intrigue or no. Everest Watch intrigue. Eh, maybe, maybe close to Everest Watch. It's maybe, just that maybe m- close. More people care about Mount Everest than sad diving which is reasonable because (laughs) less people die saturation diving than climbing mount everest so why would you want to be a saturation diver recreationally it doesn't seem fun you see you you're breathing helium so you sound like you're breathing helium for the entire month that you're down there yeah (laughs) you know there's there's some irony here which um, is maybe not super obvious, but but the first is that when we think of diving, well, I should say when I think of diving, I think of scuba diving. Scuba diving where you put on a wetsuit or a dry suit and you've got your oxygen tank and mask and there's sharks and treasure. Um, always treasure. Almost certainly treasure. Um, when we talk about commercial diving, that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about oftentimes hard hat equipped surface supplied Mm -hmm. um, construction, both horizontal and vertical, um, sewage, excavation, oil, welding um, at at many different depths, right? So so, um, some oftentimes commercial diving is done perhaps with your head not even submerged. So scuba diving is recreational. There is commercial scuba diving. For sure. But when we're talking commercial diving, we're talking like construction grade, like engineering. Yeah. And when we're talking about saturation diving, we're talking about diving that's probably not even wet. So specifically, you and your watch most of the time in a saturation diving environment are going to be dry. You're either going to be in a diving bell or... 
um, an environment on like a support vessel, mm-hmm. you're going to be at pressure for a long time, but you probably aren't going to be wet all that much of the time. And, and certainly nope. never really exposed to the water. You may have a watch that's exposed to the water if you're, you know, for brief periods of time, but you're going to be dry. Your body is going to be dry the entire time. Probably sweaty and cold all at once. Yeah. <laughs> so the issue, the issue is not one of water intrusion. Mm-mm. explicitly and, and in fact water intrusion is probably not really that great of a possibility and if it is it's the least of your concerns related to your watch <laughs> so just to be clear a helium release valve has nothing to do with scuba diving almost any kind of com- snorkeling commercial diving snorkeling free diving ball skin diving none of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. none of it this is a totally different thing Yes. And I think that's important because we, I think we conflate the two. Oh, this is 500 meters of water resistance and a helium release valve. I can go so deep. Well, yeah, but the two are unrelated. The two are wholly unrelated. I'm going to put a tachometer on this dress watch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So we've now talked about the basics of saturation diving. Yes. We've talked about the problems. As they face your watch, as the, that your watch faces. So the legend has it that, well, there's two prevailing theories. One of the prevailing theories is that Doxa is the inventor of the helium release valve. And the usual evidence for that is that, in fact, Doxa released the first publicly available watch with a helium escape valve, helium release valve, in the 300T Conquistador. So released in 1967, Yep, I believe. At or around that same... 69. Excuse me, 69. Yeah. Rolex Rolex did not release its Sea Dweller until about two years after that Mm -hmm. in 1971. However... So, so Doxa folks will be, and I guess there are Doxa folks. There are folks. There who, are folks for everyone who think this is an important conversation to have, and so here we are. Doxa folks will say, "Well, look, the 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 proof is in the pudding." But there's more to this story, and so we'll just mm-hmm. say right now, um, the inspiration for this podcast was a Periscope article. Periscope. If you don't know who Periscope is, just go. Look, Periscope up. It is, there'll be a link in the show notes, but also mm-hmm. P-E-R-E-Z, Perez, Cope, Periscope. Um, this guy talks a lot about sort of fake panerais at auction houses. And he, mm-hmm. he talks, he's really sort of a very, very good watch journalist, but he has this tilt towards the controversial or unpacking, um, unpacking sort of dirty secrets and he's kind of an expose type guy he loves putting people's dirty laundry out to dry this is the dirty laundry so i I think he's a real gem uh treat of the watch world but this article is or this article this podcast was inspired by a periscope article on this subject which will be in the show notes and Mm -hmm. you can go you can and should go read it thanks mr cope thank you i don't think it's cope hard to say i don't know it's probably not all that hard to say. I don't know. I he's he's I think he was born in Germany, so his name is hard to say. <laughs> so 
here's the here's the number one wrinkle when it comes to firsts. The Conquistador became available in 1969. <laughs> there is a Rolex patent for this technology in 1967. Mm-hmm. So it took four years between Rolex's patent mm-hmm. and their first to market product. Mm-hmm. So, is it a wrinkle? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you know, this is this is one of those things that it seems like it's going to be a really sexy controversy and it winds up being a a little vague mm-hmm. on reflection there there may be not any really good answers but also well rolex is covering it up but, yeah <laughs> <laughs> but maybe also a little sort of unsatisfying because what it seems it seems that both doxa and rolex were independently working on this thing it also seems like perhaps Doxa wanted to be working with Rolex and perhaps what perhaps was was friend zoned on this issue. Periscope, the Periscope article we talked about shows lots of pictures from the US Navy Sea Labs, I think is the Sea Labs 3, mm-hmm. um, of various divers wearing both Doxa 300 Ts and Rolex prototype sea dwellers. Um <clears throat> ostensibly both of which would have been equipped with a helium release valve at the same time. At the time, there was an executive from Doxa who stated publicly, we were working with Rolex on this equipment. But there's no actual evidence that that's the case. And notably, Doxa's technology in the Conquistador was different than Rolex's technology used in the first run of Sea Dwellers. Mm-hmm. Rolex used a pretty rudimentary technology. You can see it's just like three parts. It's a it's a plunger and a hole and a and a yeah. flat spring. Um, and Doxa used a more complicated, much more like a modern helium release valve. Right. And so, it it's that's first they were using different technologies. If you're working on this together, why are you using different technologies? Doxa notably never applied for a patent. Mm -hmm. They never marked any of their watches as patent pending. We understand that the Swiss patent office was incredibly um, inefficient at this time. And busy at the time. The, The 60s were pretty big on horology and other patents but so so docs has sort of claimed a fame here and certainly they professed hey this is we did this first and we were working with rolex that seems like it's maybe not all that likely um n- notably n- not suggesting that there's a patent pending using different technology never applying for a patent and further docs releases the 300t conquistador to the public Probably about 300 of them were made. Eight of them maybe still exist. Um, And they don't make another helium-release valve-equipped watch until 2010. 
they're busy. <laughs> or it just really wasn't theirs. But I mean, so so I guess then the question is, where does it come from? Because we don't see that similar. I mean, we see that similar technology down the line. Did they did did someone just like from the future drop it off? As Rolex clearly had the infrastructure to develop and produce, because after 1971, the Sea Dweller was being sent out in piles to Sea Labs divers to and to various professional and, divers and to Comex divers and to all these other divers as like, hey, you can have it on loan. Tell us how it works. Like, field test this for us. And we don't see that proliferation with Doxa. Yeah. Which is weird. Well, it, it not only is that weird, but it seems like perhaps Doxa had maybe a little bit of a little brother syndrome going on at the time. Um, and, and maybe a little bit of a, a loose uh, relationship with the truth uh, in these regards. Another thing that happens sort of in the 60s, mid-60s, is Doxa introduces their now famous no decomp mm-hmm. split bezel um, and basically suggests that they did this first. However, in 1965, Eterna patents the no decomp split bezel, no decompression, no deco uh, split bezel. And, and, and Doxa kind of wants to take credit for that as well. So, you know, we've talked the Everest episode in particular, we've talked about sort of the truth was, you know, what you said the truth was and the winner was the one who convinced the most people of what the truth was. It seems like Doxa was not alone in this effort, uh, but certainly they were willing to sort of say, hey, <laughs> this is ours. Even, oh, we didn't know that you did it too. Yeah, it, or, or or even just, it doesn't matter that you did it too because we did it and we did it first and betterest. Pro- proved me wrong. Exactly. There's some other interesting drama in that time period between Rolex and Doxa. And that, and that kind of just muddies the waters. Because at this time, <clears throat> in the 60s, these Swiss brands are pretty incestuous on who they're hiring. You could be an executive for one brand one day, and then the following year, you're an executive for another brand. So there's all kinds of... And everyone knows that if you're an executive for one brand and you move to another brand, even though you signed an NDA, you honor that NDA because you signed it. There's all this incestuous hiring and moving at the executive levels and and almost certainly within development levels that everyone's inadvertently sharing information. Yeah. And you got to think that there's also hiring practices built around oh, I want to hire that guy because I know he knows what they're doing. And he won't bring the technology, but he'll bring the knowledge, and that's almost as good. And it's just, it. I don't know, for such a weird and specialized piece of equipment that has marginal, at best, value in the watch industry, that's a lot of turmoil over it. Yeah, you know, it seems it, the story, the sort of lineage story here reminds me a little of the automatic chronograph 
story, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's is it the Seiko? Is it Zenith? Who who's the first? And the the reality is, um, probably both Doxa and Rolex did a similar thing at approximately the same time. Arguably, Doxa did it better earlier. Mm-hmm. We know Rolex had more money. Uh, we know that Bob Barth, who's kind of credited as having the idea, took his idea for a valve specifically to Rolex and not to Doxa. We know that the C-Labs guys were wearing both Doxas and um, C-Dwellers. Mm-hmm. So so it maybe seems like it's less about who did it first um then we all then we all we all want the the victor right who who is the victor it kind of seems like both things were happening rolex getting the patent in probably is the most legally most significant item uh there but yeah it there you're right they're all just kind of doing this stuff everybody's working on this thing they're all working on it simultaneously they all know everybody else is working on it so at some point it becomes marketing and production delays uh and these really benign factors that design the that, that decide the victor meanwhile a bunch of other watch brands were competing to get to the moon and, right. they, and, and, <laughs> right. and these brands are like how can i equip these 500 people with a watch right yeah yeah and 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 certainly eclipsed you know, you know, diving at the time is eclipsed by the space race in some really important ways, right? Who cares about the ocean when we're going to fucking space? Interestingly, the ocean's maybe a lot more interesting than space. And but you know, not much has changed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got the drama. We've got the thing. And the drama's maybe womp womp. Yeah, the drama's a little womp womp, right? It's an interesting story that, again, Rolex is tied up in a who did it first? Who did it bestest? Who did this bestest? Exactly. And also the device is maybe a little womp womp. Yeah, the device is certainly womp womp. Yeah. Uh, It just, it seems... It's fishy to me that Rolex is always involved in these. Why isn't any other brand the common denominator in these weird cover-ups or misunderstandings or the documentation's been lost? Kind of scandals. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I you know, I I I do think that Rolex is a little bit like that guy who we all knew when we were like in middle school or whatever who like just always got the credit for everything, right? It's like, you're kind of dumb. You're always late. You never work as hard as anybody else, and you always and you, you still get the credit for everything. I think they have an army of Swiss assassins. <laughs> yeah. And like their own, their own black op team that goes into the patent office and removes single documents. So it, it should be stated also... Uh, that this is not the only way to deal with this problem. There are, so what we've discussed thus far is what's called an automatic helium release valve or Mm -hmm. helium escape valve, which is automatic, meaning 
it, it lets it, the pressure do the work. It, the pressure does the work. The way it releases the pressure is as the gases expand, it compresses a spring typically, mm -hmm. which opens the valve. This is a one-way valve. So if the pressure is coming from the outside, the valve will be closed. If the pressure is coming from the inside, it will push out and release. And it doesn't automatically. You don't need to do anything. Famously, Omega mm -hmm. is also involved in this quest. They do, at the same time as the 300T Conquistador and the Sea Dweller are being developed, Omega is also developing a fairly famous watch in mm -hmm. the Ploprof. So Ploprof... Uh, short for plongeur professional, meaning professional diver. In French. The Ploprof is, does two things to solve this, combat this problem. It, One, it, well, it does a third and really important thing. It also replaces some of the weights on your weight belt. Yeah. <laughs> so one, it helps you with uh, descent. Two, it, it actually incorporates a different level of seal. Um, the, the way the case is built and the way the seals are done, it more effectively keep helium atoms out of the inside of the watch. Mm -hmm. And then it also has a manual release valve. So not dissimilar to the function of a crown. You actually manually equalize the watch both up and down by way of a big button on the side. What is that button? What does that do? That is your manual helium escape valve. Uh, then just for pushing? Just for the pushing. Yeah. Um, and Seiko also. Yep. Seiko is also doing a similar thing by way of brute force, right? So their monocoque cases, Seiko's monocoque cases, are meant to just prevent the gases from getting in or out so in uh, a saturation environment perhaps if you don't have an equalized watch you can't use chronograph buttons you right. can't open or close so you, you can't really set your watch if it's a brute force watch like a seiko um, because you just can't we have to incrementally that's right. Yeah, you, it has to be part of your uh, your pressurization checklist. That's right. Either you equalize it by way of opening the crown during descent and or during compression and decompression, or you don't. <laughs> yeah, you you don't. There's no going back on it. That's right. That's right. Um, so so there is that aspect of this thing. Um. The helium release valve is, I think, important because it's just really simple, elegant, innocuous. You know, the Ploprof, there's nothing innocuous about a Ploprof or really even a Marine Master. Um, the the solutions, the, the helium release valve solutions are neat. They're svelte and, and diverse. And, and, you know, much like Doxo, we like these, we like these mechanical solutions that work as well as the brute force uh, solutions. So, I mean, it's, it's it's fascinating the the way watch companies take on problems, right? Who who yeah. gives a shit about saturation diving problems? Watch companies, right? <laughs> for for whatever reason, a watch is a necessity. 
And you, know, you can't have a digital timer or something on the wall. You got to have a watch. And watch companies saw that problem and they're like, we can fix that. We can solve that problem. And they did it. And, and everyone's got a slightly different take on it. And Ball has a new, not a new, but Ball's got a helium escape that they pioneered kind of at their at their own timeline. And it's just, it's cool. It's a, it's a totally useless technology to 99% of the market. Maybe even more than 99%. No, way yeah. more than 99%. Well, people buying watches of these type, of, who, are, who are dropping some money on watches. But, but they do it anyway. Companies spend money to improve this technology or maintain this technology. Yeah, technology is in and of itself marketable, whether someone needs tech or not, especially a sexy tech, like something for commercial diving. That is something that people will want, whether they need that or not. And you don't need that. You don't need that. I don't no. need that. We don't need that. Uh, uh, notably, though, if you don't want to drop a bucket of money on a uh, on one, Divex has a... $130 500-meter diver with a helium release valve. Right. And and this is <clears throat> the same watch, I think, as my, my Divex, but it's got a higher higher depth rating and an weighs, HRV. And weighs about a pound more. This is the offshore that has the HRV. So I've got the offshore without the HRV yeah. or and with the two the two hundred meter HRV or the two hundred meter offshore with no HRV. But there's also a three the one you're looking yes, at. Yes, the offshore five hundred. Five hundred, that's right. So it's a little bigger, not much. The, you know, and I think my offshore is a eleven millimeters. It's not as big as I expected it to be. Yeah. It's a it's big a, shrouded tuna case, 11 millimeters. Way better than I expected it to be. <laughs> if you don't know about the Divex Offshore, just Google it. Also the Divex Professional. These I, are white label watches, probably made by Seiko. I may link to it. It depends on if I remember in the morning. A <laughs> couple more details about the helium release valve. So... Uh, Saturation diving is also known as mixed gas diving for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. The ISO standard for saturation or mixed gas diving watches is 6425. <coughs> and the, the standard requires that every single watch be tested. There's a battery of tests. But basically requires that it can do the things that they need to do. I didn't look up the testing procedures for 6425, but there is an ISO standard. Because you have to buy individual ISO standards. Yeah. It's absurd. It's a it's a very strange ecosystem. Yeah. Now now the question is for to, you you don't have to meet the ISO standard to have an HRV no. in your watch. What is the higher threshold behind diver? Like, what watches does this ISO requirement apply to? It, it applies to like north of five hundreds. Uh, I think they have to be three hundred <clears throat> meters. Mm -hmm. I think they have to be three hundred meters, and they have to have some sort of mixed gas capabilities for up to thirty days. Is the state that's that's what the standard is designed to 
provide. Okay, They're, so it's a step beyond like a diver's watch. It's yes. like if you want this ISO certification, you have to also demonstrate these capacities. And, and each watch has to be each individual piece that w- winds up in somebody's hands has to be tested. Which is reasonable. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's reasonable. Um, so if you have an ISO 6425 watch, you're A, you've paid for it, and B, you know that somebody actually tested that watch. Touch it and put it in a lab. One more detail about this about this whole thing that I thought was incredibly interesting that I never considered um, and that actually kind of tickles me is that in a saturation diving environment, as we said, you're breathing almost entirely helium and a tiny bit of oxygen. And everybody in the world who's ever sucked on a balloon knows if you inhale a little bit of helium, you talk like Mickey Mouse. Mm-hmm. Saturation divers, typically a team of guys and gals, I assume. Just a few of them. Who do sat runs of 30 days. That's the standard sat run. And they talk like Mickey Mouse the entire time. I could not get over it. <laughs> I would, I'd just never be able to overcome looking at this, uh, like this enormous dude unshowered unkempt who's who's an underwater contractor just hard underwater construction the most elite diver in the world basically navy seals of divers talking like mickey mouse yeah like you you can accept me talking like that i would have a lot of trouble accepting the rock talking like that yeah yeah and that's that's kind of yeah. I, I mean, they're maybe not bodybuilders, but yeah, these are like you said, hard dudes. So uh, that's all I've got. Andrew, anything else you want to say about saturation diving or helium release valve? I think that's it. I, this is it's uh, always something I've kind of wanted to address because it's something so benign and, and misunderstood, right? I, Just yeah. naturally misunderstood. Even if you know it's misunderstood, you still maybe don't understand it. Misunderstood, mischaracterized. Brings no value to the watch, but it's certainly cool. Yeah. Put your hand in a balloon and nothing will change. (laughs) Unless you have your hand in that balloon for five days under a very high pressure. Yeah. Other things. Oh. What you got? I got another thing. So I got a new video game a few weeks ago for like 12 bucks. Was it Subnautica 2? No. UFC four. <laughs> I know you're serious, but I, I'm having trouble believing you. UFC, the, the ultimate fighting championship four. And I got it. Cause I've always enjoyed playing like boxing games and other sporting games. And I was like, just scrolling the store and I saw that and I was like, Oh, it's like almost free. How bad can it be? How bad is it? It's amazing. It's one of the most (laughs) complicated video games I've ever played. And it's not complicated because the gameplay is very easy. It's knock out, submit, or survive an onslaught from your opponent. It's complicated because for anyone who's ever played a a combat sports game on a video game platform... There's a lot of things you can do with your body 
And for a video game to be able to capture that with like, I don't know, 12 buttons and then an unlimited combination of ergonomically reasonable button presses is really impressive. And the every stage of this combat sport game is great. The boxing interaction is really, really well done. The, uh, the gameplay is smooth. Everything is very intuitive. I, I was playing it with my six-year-old, who's not good at it because he's six, but he understood immediately the mechanics of the game. He's like, okay, these buttons make me punch you. These buttons make me kick you. This button makes me punch you here, here, here. Like these combinations of buttons. So it's basically exactly like WWF WrestleMania from 1989. But the graphics are better. <laughs> the the clinch mechanics are great. The grappling mechanics are great. It it I'm shocked at how intuitive it is. But then as you dive into it, like once you start to progress from like easy to normal to hard to legendary, there are virtually unlimited button combinations that are much less intuitive that you have to learn the mechanics of. And it's so it's a fighting. Yeah. I'm giving you a little bit of shit. I'm sorry. You are, you are. It's like, it's like when you graduate from, from playing, you know, Madden on easy to, to all Madden. Or when you learn a Falcon Punch for the first time, yeah, you're you, like you time it right. Yeah, you, when you get those mechanics down and you like you just know how to do it. I have been playing the shit out of this game. It's terrific. It's and, and the outside of gameplay is well done. There's like you you build your career and you have your training camps and you kind of try to build your status as a fighter. I've been really, really taken into it so do you get to like design your character yeah you can design your character did, did you design a character to look like you no he has hair okay and a beard <laughs> lots and, of hair and lots of beard and he's ripped <laughs> none of those things represent anything about me he's also tall because he's got a better reach yeah we weigh about the same I think I think I'm gonna start when I do these when I do these things. I'm gonna start designing these characters to look exactly like me. So not super tall, not attractive, built like a Pixar mom. I did create one to look like you, and I routinely beat the <laughs> shit out of it. <laughs> um, Mark, cool. Mark built his, and he is like a six foot nine, two hundred pound dude with a with a rainbow mohawk. And a Viking beard that goes to his knees. Just for context, I believe Mark is the smallest kid in his class, correct? I'd be shocked if he wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, he's tiny. <laughs> he's tiny. And he's younger than most of the kids do. But... Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But he goes to his jujitsu class and he's there with he like... some ass. He's there with kids from four to seven. He's still among the smaller, but he is absolutely the most aggressive the coach is always like no 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 no. we're to one right now when we go to three you can do that but uh, cool it (laughs) he's like throwing the shit out of these kids who've been doing jujitsu for three years he's like fuck you (laughs) like be cool man shit so anyway ufc4 if you got 12 bucks and a bunch of hours 
do it. That's good. I'm going to have to see if it's a, if it's available on switch. If not, you have the code to my garage. Yes, I do. Uh, I'm going to take this a little bit different direction. Not to suggest that UFC four video games, $12 video games are low brow. I mean, you beat the shit out of other humans. It's yeah. a little low brow just inherently. And not to say that podcasts, even like public broadcasting podcasts are highbrow, but uh, maybe a little bit different uh, a change of pace here. So if you spend any time listening to podcasts, you may have heard of a little podcast called 40 and 20, but you also may have heard of a podcast called Serial, which I think is probably the most sort of uh, viral podcast that ever existed. Especially because it came before COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if that thing had dropped during COVID. Yeah, it would have been nuts. No one would have known about it. (laughs) (laughs) So Serial came out a handful of years ago, uh, hosted by the really incredibly talented Sarah Koenig. (laughs) Koenig. Um, It's fantastic. It's a. It tells the story of this guy Adnan Syed, who was accused something falsely and then convicted of murdering his girlfriend Hayden Lee. Blah blah blah. If you haven't listened to Serial season one, I highly recommend it. He did it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's certainly still in prison for life based on that. So, um, but it, it was it was a phenomenon, and Serial has maybe. Um, Serial has maybe been in the conversation since then. They did their season two, which was Bo Bergdahl, which I think was less um, less yeah. captivating for any number of reasons. But they've released a new podcast, not under the serial title. Uh, and it's called, it's a single season sort of limited series called The Trojan Horse Affair. Um, and this is, it's very much in the style of of serial it, it it's a serial production and it it is very much in that same style um there are a couple of hosts one of the hosts is brian reed who is a very experienced investigative journalist and the other is a journalism student or at least at the time called hamza syed uh and these guys are investigate i almost don't want to say what it's about because Learning what the topic is about is going to make you not listen to it. Uh, they're investigating something. They're investigating something. I, I will tell you what it's about, but please, for the love of God, trust me when I say any thoughts that you might have about how interesting this might be based on the subject matter are completely wrong. And, so, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you for a very important reminder of that. You're listening to a podcast about watches. <laughs> You were listening to minute 55 of a podcast about watches, episode 173, 74. Uh, So the the skinny here is that in the last decade, I'm not sure exactly when, there was a plot, this controversy in these English public schools, particularly in a town called Birmingham. I think I'm saying that right, or maybe Berm. Birmingham. Birmingham. Uh, and it involved a fairly well-organized and potentially successful, or at least partially successful, plot from this specific group of Sunni Muslims who had sort of infiltrated 
public school administration to kind of take these schools over. And this thing did get international press. There's this famous letter from the time called the Trojan Horse Letter, which is ostensibly written by someone involved in this plot that kind of lays out what the details of the plot are, including getting people in leadership positions and getting rid of the people you don't like and putting people in you do like in order to kind of... Sounds like normal school board shit. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, it, so, so the plot is basically to make schools more Muslim and, and more sort of stoically Muslim, traditionally Muslim. Um, and this thing gets national coverage, international coverage, excuse me. And in generally it's accepted and reported that this is a real thing. This actually happened. People lost their jobs and, um, were banned from teaching and, and that's it. Well, these guys start there, um, but also with a set of skepticisms. And the way they tell this story is absolutely riveting. So they talk about uh, driveway moments where you get to where you're going and you can't get out of the car because you're listening. I've been listening to this now for about two weeks and every single time I get to where I'm going, I have a driveway moment where I don't want to turn it off. It's riveting. The story is really well told. There's some very interesting meta moments. The The chemistry between the hosts is really good. It is fantastic. I am now right about at the end of episode seven and starting episode eight, so I still don't know. How, how long are these episodes? About an hour, I'd say. Okay. Yeah. Which means it takes me a long time because I only drive for... 12 minutes. <laughs> That's right. So I'm listening to about an episode every couple of days at this point. That was the best Working part about days. super commuting, man. Yeah. When I was driving <laughs> 250 miles a day, I ripped up podcasts. Yeah, same. same. I don't do that anymore. Yeah, so I, t- I highly recommend... Trojan Horse Fair, I think you can listen to it just about anywhere, right? It's one of these super it's, podcasts. It's American life. I mean, you can listen to it right from the website. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's if just you found us, fantastic. You can find them. Uh, shout out to one of our one of our good friends, uh, Joe Frost, a.k.a. Captain Insano, Captain Insano, who uh, clued me in on it. It's just really, really good. I love it. Highly recommend it. I'll, I'll take, a, take a listen, see. Do it. Look, see. Do it. See it. Uh, Andrew, Andrew, is there anything else that you'd like to say about watches or UFC uh, video games or or perhaps even Trojan horses before we go? Uh, Balls Helium release valve yeah. on their ball skin diver. <laughs> they integrated the helium release valve into the crown stem so there's no weird little nipple mm. and no extra crown. I actually have a helium release valve integrated into my body. Yeah. It's in my butt. Butthole. <laughs> yeah, but the ball skin diver, they've got some, <laughs> they've got a cool technology in it. <laughs> ball skin. Uh, hey, thanks you guys for joining us for this episode of 40 and 20, the Watch Clicker podcast. We, we're really glad you're here. Uh, you can check us out on Instagram at 40 and 20 at Watch Clicker. Also, please check us out the website, watchclicker.com. That's where we post weekly reviews, articles, and and of course, every single episode of this podcast. We want to thank Notice Watches, I think for the last time, yeah, for, spot, I, for supporting this episode of the podcast. This is 
Uh, yeah, this is the your last opportunity to hear your warning. If you go to the Notice website right now, you can get 10% off any watch by using the code CLICKER at checkout. So check out noticewatches.com. And thanks, Notice, again, for supporting, what, eight or nine episodes of, of the podcast. If you want to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash 40 and 20. That's how we get all the hosting, software, uh, hardware for the website and the podcast. We really, really, really appreciate everybody who's decided to support us. And if you don't, we'd love it if you did. And don't forget to tune back in next Thursday for another hour of watches, food, drinks, life, and other things we like. Bye-bye.